Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com. I've met a lot of expats, but I haven't met many who are quite as mobile as Karen Ricks and her family. Every time I check in with Karen, she's in a different part of the world. At the time of this recording, she was in North Macedonia with her husband and son, and they were, as always, preparing for their next move. But it hasn't always been this way. The California native wasn't even considering a life abroad, but her husband's interest in a professional opportunity led to their move to Japan. A stint that was supposed to last one year ended up stretching into a decade. But since then, the family has truly embraced the term nomad and they've crisscrossed the planet twice. Karen explains how she founded a school abroad, made the decision to give it up and travel the world full time. She also breaks down the nuances of homeschooling, world schooling, and unschooling your child. And she shares how her multiracial family has been received in the various communities they have lived in. 
Karen is doing this expat life thing completely different from a lot of others, and you'll learn about it all in this episode of The Global Chatter. Hey, Karen, how are you? Unbelievable. How are you doing, Amanda? (laughs) You know, I'm doing really, really well. I'm so excited to catch up with you. You are one of our, like I, I, there's a couple of you that I say are some of our OG expats. Um, (laughs) Some of our folks who've been part of the black expat community for a really long time. And, and for those who don't know, you have written some pieces over the years and I'm just so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure for me to catch up with you and the other amazing black expats in the community. So, you know, with that happy introduction, um, I would love for you to just tell people, first of all, where where in the world are you right now? (laughs) Well, right now, my family and I are located in the city of Orid. We are on the shores of Lake Orid in North Mm -hmm. Macedonia. Oh my goodness, North Macedonia. And for people who, okay, and so here's the thing. My geography is pretty good, but you might need a breakdown for folks. Where is North Macedonia? (laughs) We are in the Balkans in Eastern Europe. We are directly north of Greece, east of Albania. Wow. Wow. How long have you been there? Actually, we haven't been here very long, just a few weeks. I mentioned Mm. Albania specifically because that's where my family and I were beforehand. And I always go through the geography lesson for Albania (laughs) because (laughs) prior to landing in that country for the first time, my family and I were in Italy. So everybody Mm -hmm. usually knows how easy it is to find the boot of Italy in Europe. So on the heel of that boot is the Adriatic Sea, and uh-huh. Albania is located directly opposite the heel of Italy's boot. Oh and my goodness. Lake Orid is the it is right on the eastern border of Albania and the western mm-hmm. border of North Macedonia. So these beautiful bodies of water, the Adriatic Sea and this beautiful clear Lake Orid have been the waters that my family and I have been admiring for the last year plus. <laughs> and so I, I think if anyone just even hears just that that description, they should already know that you guys are pretty highly mobile. And so yes. <laughs> I know that there's some folks that are just meeting you and, and learning about your story for the first time. So would you go ahead and just even share a little bit of, of your international story and your background and, and how you and your family even got abroad initially? Sure. Well, I usually start back in 2007, which is when my husband and I left the United States to travel to Japan. And it was originally planned to be a very short term deal. It was going to be one year. And then we were going to return back to our quote unquote normal lives in the United States. Of course. Uh, course. God had other ideas. We loved the experience so much that that one year turned into a decade. Uh, Our son was born in Japan. Yeah, a little longer than we anticipated. (laughs) Our son was born in Japan. I founded our own international Montessori school in Japan. And then in 2016, we 
shut it all down. We basically sold 99% of everything we own. And wow. we took our show on the road. I took off to cooking school in Italy. Mm-hmm. And we made it was such a major move to go from the United yeah. States to Japan. Uh, but we did it, you know, we made it work. And it was more than we had ever imagined it could be. And then we had this other major, major move from Japan to Italy. And mm-hmm. at that point, you know, my husband and I kind of reassessed what we were doing. And we realized that picking up and moving again, especially after having become such minimalists and selling off most of everything that we own was actually not going to be that hard. And so we went to the UK for a little while. We spent half a year in Mexico and Mm -hmm. we realized that we could literally continue to do that indefinitely. And so we've been traveling almost four years full time now. We have lived on four different continents. I want to say that North Macedonia makes 10 or 11 different countries. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we are absolutely loving this nomadic world schooling lifestyle that we're living. Let me jump in there because I, I, I'm so curious. What was the initial catalyst that even took you to Japan? So what was it that made you both say, hey, we want to go to Japan for a year? <laughs> it's funny that you ask because my husband was in love with the idea of Uh, working in Japan, teaching in Japan, traveling around Japan. And initially I was not, I was so reticent in fact that between the time he first brought up the idea and the time we were actually in country was, I want to say like four years. Okay. So So it took a while. It it took, it took a while for me to come around. Um, But he he convinced me. Um, he was really excited by the idea. He was also recruited by the largest English language school in the nation at that time mm-hmm. to come to Japan to teach. So I followed him. I was just going to, you know, play tourist and be a housewife. And I was just kind of along for the ride. And he was enjoying the work that he was doing so much. And I ended up making amazing friends with a lot of other teachers in Japan, not just English language teachers, but uh, teachers uh, across the spectrum. And Mm -hmm. having, you know, worked with, talked with, counseled and advised a lot of different teachers, parents began asking me to teach. Um, I ended up working with a good Japanese friend teaching like little mommy and me classes in local community centers in our city. And as the children of those parents got older and became school age, the, the parents themselves asked me, you said, you know, my child has to go to school now, but I still want them to study with you, to learn with you. When are you going to open your school? <laughs> so that was how I ended up founding our International Montessori School. And, to, you know, you obviously mentioned that your husband was being recruited by this institution to mm-hmm. come and teach. So did both of you come from an education background in the U.S. or did both of you have different careers and transitioned into education? 
I have always been an educator. It was something that I was doing for many, many years before we ever even considered leaving the United States, which is where my husband and I were born and raised. Yeah. My husband was really interested in teaching specifically in Japan. And so he began studying education specifically in order to do that. It's not what he has always done, but he has always uh, been in that teaching and kind of coaching role himself, uh, Mm -hmm. having also worked in martial arts and um, as a personal trainer. So he had that teaching experience, um, just not necessarily in the classroom. Yeah. And okay. so that during that time that we spend in Japan, he continued to study and learn, even uh, getting his own Montessori certification so that, you know, eventually we all were working together in our school. And I mean, let's be honest, it's not every day that you hear people move to a country and eventually open up a school. And so right. what was the experience of, of opening up an, an educational institution in Japan. What was that like? And, 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 and what was the real motivation behind that? Well, as I said, I've always been an educator and I come from a family of teachers. So I had literally been in discussion with the director of the school at which I'd been teaching in the United States uh, about expanding that school and beginning uh, an infant toddler program at that Montessori Mm -hmm. school. So the fact that I ended up doing that was not a surprise. It was the fact that it happened while we were in Japan (laughs) that was really outside of my comfort zone. And the fact that we did it as soon as we did too, I'd always thought that, you know, of course I would love to have my own school. I would love to, um, you know, be able to work with my child, but we opened the doors to our school when our son was just four months old. And that was years early, earlier than I had ever anticipated doing so. And it It was our decision, obviously, but that decision was the timeline was sped up by uh, the massive Tohoku earthquakes and tsunamis back in 2011. You remember that? Yep. Yep. I mean, how did you... So, yes, major upheaval, uh, so much in transition. And we had been discussing the possibility of opening our school and making plans to do so. And then suddenly, here is this major national disaster, and foreign residents of Japan were fleeing the country like rats off of a sinking ship. And we were really at the point where we needed to make a statement to our community, this community in which we had become pillars, you know, letting people know that this is our home. This is where we intend to stay. And so the establishment of our business, while again, a little bit earlier than we had initially anticipated, was perfectly timed to really inspire the confidence of the parents who entrusted us with their children. And did, were the students coming predominantly from the Japanese greater community or was it also expats or was it a mix? Where did your student body and, and, and families come from? 
it was all of the above. We had okay. students that had two Japanese parents. <laughs> we had uh, several students that had one Japanese parent and one foreign resident. You know, we had students who had two foreign resident parents. Uh, our community was really uh, a mix of parents and staff and families from all over the world. And I don't, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, just so we can drill it down. Where specifically in Japan were you guys? So our school, our, our community was in Nagano Prefecture, which okay. is located in the geographic center of the country. We're about three hours outside of Tokyo. Okay. And so it seems like you have this vibrant community. You obviously were in Japan for a long time. <laughs> you initially yeah. were going to be a year. You stay more than a year and open up a whole school. <laughs> what was the decision then to leave that, you know, especially in a community that you, you were growing in and, and obviously you loved. What, yes. what was sort of the catalyst that had you guys decide to know what, um, maybe it's time for us to head out. You know, it was honestly such a hard decision. As you said, you know, this was a community that we loved. This was, you know, our son's hometown. <laughs> um, the school was, it was almost like another child, such an integral part of our family, our day-to-day -day life. Um but what happened was one summer, I had a friend reach out to share this incredible opportunity with me about uh, this amazing cooking school in Italy. And, you know, I was... Uh, Wait a minute, did, did you say yes. cooking school in Italy? Cooking school <laughs> in Italy. Yes, that's exactly when, when. what I said. I've been to Italy. You said cook, which makes my mind go food, which makes, yeah, of course. Yes. Of course, Italy. Anyway, so amazing yes. cooking school in Italy. Say more. Yeah. So I was, you know, uh, perusing the, the website. And we were on summer vacation from our school. And it was probably like, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I remember just thinking, oh, that would be nice. You know, maybe one of these days, what if? And for whatever reason, I, my brain got stuck on that what if, you know? And I literally did not take more than 30 seconds to think about it before I dashed off a quick note to the school just to say, Hey, you know, my name is Karen and this is what I've been doing for the last decade. And yeah. you know, I'd love to know more about your school. And I really sent this little letter off into the ether and didn't think much of it. But when I got a reply back and, uh, <laughs> a request for an interview. And when I talked with the owner of the school and really just began to get excited about the possibilities, it was, it was really something that um, the excitement that it inspired in my child was mm. what set this light bulb off in my head. And what I saw was his incredible enthusiasm about this adventure. And I realized that letting that opportunity pass by 
would probably be one of those things that I would regret for the rest of my life. Mm, And I know having, you know, just a, a lifetime of filled with amazing opportunities. You know, we grow and we change in so many different ways. But each time, each progression, there's there's some change, you know, that we have to make. And there's some kind of pain or obstacle that we have to overcome. And, you know, there's this pain sometimes of, you know, making these hard changes in our lives. You know, it was incredibly painful. (laughs) There were a lot of changes that my husband and I had to overcome moving from the United States to Japan. And it was it was painful, but it was really empowering and enlightening and educational and inspiring. And it was a lot of really exciting growth. And then there's the pain of regret. You know, there's the wondering, you know, what if I had taken this other path in life or something like that? And watching my son light up at the idea of traveling to Italy. And this was, you know, he was five years old at the time we're having this conversation. So he hadn't been on an airplane yet. He had traveled around Japan with us a bit, but he had never been on an airplane before. He had literally, you know, born and raised in Japan. He didn't know what life was like on other continents and other countries. And I realized that at that moment, the pain of regret of not taking advantage of this incredible once in a lifetime kind of opportunity would be so much more than the pain of undergoing this very dramatic change that we were going to have to undertake as a family to pick up and leave our home of 10 years to, you know, let go of this business that was like, you know, another baby. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like I said, it was, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and we decided we just could not pass that up. So, so give us a little context. So this opportunity in Italy, what was it? What would you be doing? What, what kind of training would you receive? And, and, and even where in Italy did you go? Okay, so the school is in Sicily, which is the southernmost island off of the tip of the Italian boot, off of the toe. Yeah. So, and we were in this tiny, teeny, tiny little town um, south of Palermo, which is one of the major uh, coastal cities in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And... It was a cooking school like no other. It's not like the traditional culinary schools where, you know, people are chopping and roasting and making sauces and, you know, doing tests on how to make this, that, and the other thing. The school is really focused on helping to explore and understand the versatility and the sustainability of culinary traditions, not only in Sicily and throughout Italy, but in the region and uh, a study of sustainable agricultural and food practices literally all over the world. Wow. And it, <laughs> it, it was, it was years I mean, ago. And yet there are times it. when it feels like <laughs> yesterday because there are parts of it, uh, parts of that experience that I'm still working to wrap my brain around. 
And and how long were you in this community? How long were you at the school? Uh, three months. Okay. And so I, I'm kind of interested in unpacking that because mm-hmm. and as you gave the really great introduction and talking about this, so your family has left Japan, which they've been for and been living in for a decade. Your son is at this point about five, maybe turning six. Is that about He's six years old just before we moved? Yeah. And then, you know, I, I'm curious as 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 parents who were raising a child who was in Japan, mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the transition you think for him going into going from the country that he's known to this new space where it's different, right? Italy is different and yes. Sicily is different from, from <laughs> where you were. Um, yeah. What, what, what do you, how do you think he sort of navigated that at a, such a young age? Well, I think part of what made it so exciting for all of us as a family is that the things that we were learning, the things that we needed to do to make that transition were really not so different from the things that we had been teaching our child and all the children who came through our school all along, you know, um, as a truly international school, having an international community within the four walls of this brick and mortar building, we had been doing things like uh, studying languages, like looking at geography and the similarities and differences between cultural dress and um, practices. And so it wasn't like that part was really a stretch. Mm-hmm. It was, we, we literally made a game out of studying Italian, which was yeah. a new language for all of us as a family. Um, yeah. you know, I talk about Duolingo as a, an incredible language learning resource. And we had fun with the kind of gamification aspect of it, seeing who could get the most points in yeah. a day, who remembered the most vocabulary or who could score the most points on a review t- or whatever, you know, but it was, it was fun. And, and did you, well, and let me ask this question, mm-hmm. uh, just because you, you were talking about learning Italian, was your son and were you guys fluent in Japanese previously? I will say fluency <laughs> is, um, more of a spectrum than kind of a fixed point. And so while the language in our home has always been English, we were all communicative and operating freely in Japanese within the community. Okay. Okay. So, yes, I I would have called us a a multilingual family before we... um, even my husband and I, having studied Spanish before leaving the United States, we had some experience with languages. But living in a place where the community language was entirely different, that was a brand new experience. And the challenges of learning Japanese 
as a community language far outstripped the challenges of learning Italian. Italian, right? Especially especially when you had Spanish as as at least somewhat of a reference point. Exactly. Um, Literally, many of our Japanese friends expressed concern about the difficulties we would have knowing that we didn't have a background in Italian. And I just laughed because (laughs) if, if I had to rank on a scale of difficulty, you know, going from English to Japanese or going from Japanese to Japanese. Italian. Oh, the Japanese was way more challenging. And I, <laughs> I mean, we're talking and different, I completely different grammar structure, right. three different syllabary, not even a, a, a sort of alphabet that I could read and comprehend and understand, but three different new ones to learn, not even a comparison. <laughs> and I, I think for a reference point, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but you're originally from California, correct? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. So I think I, for the folks who are Americans, always kind of cool to hear where, where people kind of left and where they went to. And so um, I think even knowing the Spanish, right? And I, what part of Were you San Diego? Was that you? I was um, in San Diego, yes. And so I was traveling look, internationally across the Mexican border, border before yeah. I ever needed a passport to do so. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm actually prouder that I remember where I, everyone's from when I go, was that was that, was that country you? Is yes, that state uh, you? No, <laughs> um and and so yeah, I could definitely vouch, you know, for me, uh French is the language, the other language that I grew up in the community hearing. And so you're right, when I went to South America, okay, fine, I hadn't really studied Spanish, I hadn't studied Portuguese, but I could I could understand yes. significant amounts of what people were saying. And I, actually what was, I think, harder was I didn't know the words in Spanish or Portuguese and I'd say it in French and everyone would look at me because I think on the spectrum of, of romance languages, <laughs> French is the one that's is the more complicated, but like Italian and Spanish and Portuguese are very close to each other. But yes. you're right. I, I That could be so helpful, especially when you're trying to navigate, I guess at that point, really like your fourth language. Right. Yes. Yes. If you think about it based on, on your own language history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, all right. So you're in, you're in Sicily, which is not something we hear every day. And <laughs> you're, there's a lot of things about your story that we don't hear every day. Right, and you're, right. you're, you're in Sicily and, and what was your, so this, this program was three months. Mm-hmm. What did you sort of envision was going to be, your next step after that? Or was this a, this is a new adventure, let's see how it plays out when it's done kind of mode? Well, actually, as we were discussing, you know, this big move from Japan to Italy, you know, I started looking for other teaching opportunities in Italy. And we traveled with the idea that perhaps we would find something there. And there was one particular opportunity that I was pursuing that fell through while I was still at the school and another that opened up in an entirely different place. So that was when my husband and I really got to talking about the fact that we didn't have to just move and then stay anchored in one location for a year or a decade like you know we had originally planned or hadn't planned for Japan. But that mm. having already sold most of our stuff and, you know, traveling relatively lightly, 
we could pick up and move from one country to another as, you know, opportunities arose as our curiosity encouraged. And that's essentially what we've been doing for the last four years. All right. And when we come back from our break, we're going to start talking about this idea of world schooling and and this this concept that honestly I learned having talked to you. Um, And and we're going to do a deep dive on um, what it's like to to find community and faith and all of that while you're abroad. So let me hit stop. know you, Karen. A lot of folks know you from our kitchen classroom. And, yes. and there, there are two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about that. Um, and I want to talk about world schooling. And so let's actually back it up a little bit. Uh, you have done, once again, as I referenced earlier, a couple pieces for us. And one of them was on world schooling. And I will say, yes. even though it was written a while ago, we still get people who hop up on the site. And that's one of the most popular things to read about is world schooling. And, you know, Yay. and one of my thoughts behind it is, of course, families in general who are thinking about going abroad and are looking at their educational options. But the other thing, quite frankly, is, and and we are both American, is Mm -hmm. as we see a nation that's got a lot going on right now, um, and there's a lot socially and politically and economically, I think folks are really expanding the way they want to approach educating their children and really just even expanding the way the kind of lives they want to live. And so I would love for you to introduce for the people who don't know what world schooling (laughs) is. Like I, I had an idea. I just didn't know the name for it and I've heard different names for it, but I'd love for you as as a practitioner of world schooling to tell the people (laughs) what is world schooling. What is world schooling? Yes. Well, I'm actually one of those people, like you said, who, had kind of stumbled into this concept and was really living it before I had a name for what it was. But the way that we as a family define world schooling is literally learning from everyone we meet, every place we go, and every activity in which we are engaged quite literally, the world is our classroom. And when I talk about categorizing our sort of educational style as a family, it really breaks down into sort of a few different uh, broader areas. Uh, A lot of people would put us in the homeschooling category. And that means something very different in 2020 uh, than it has. I think for most of what we talk about as, you know, our educational history. But for the purposes of what we're discussing here, homeschooling is, you know, really when the parents, when the families are taking charge of that educational journey for themselves, for their children. And that is classified as being in the home, but it, most cases, it doesn't mean that we're homebodies or that we're homebound. Mm. We're really 
living and moving and working and learning within our communities. So that's really of crucial importance. But even more broadly than that, uh, we as a family kind of fall into what we call the unschooling Mm. category. And for homeschoolers, uh, or when people are first considering stepping outside of a traditional school education and moving it to the home, to the family's realm of responsibility, a lot of people first think about recreating school at home. So you might have a designated space, a desk, a, a classroom in the home. You might have a schedule that looks a lot like a school schedule and separated by different subject matter areas and things like that. You might have textbooks and maps on the walls and things like that. For us, unschooling is kind of the polar opposite of that. We live as if school doesn't exist. And what that looks like for us is following those things about which we are most passionate down these drastic rabbit holes of research and exploration and study. And it is the most wildly free way of not just learning, but of living our lives. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I wonder why was this the method uh, that you, you decided to go? Was it, in part of the fact that you guys became highly mobile or was it you decide to go this way in terms of educating your child and then became highly mobile? You know, it's interesting because the pushback really that I got from a lot of friends and families when we embarked on this journey looked a lot more like, what? Are you crazy? What are you thinking? Um, I say that mostly to reassure parents who are, you know, maybe rethinking their children's, their family's educational journey that it's not such a crazy thing. Mm. (laughs) But as, you know, as an educator, as a teacher who is passionate about learning, who has, you know, been doing this for so long and coming from a family of teachers, stepping outside the classroom was really a very radical thing. Mm. But I think the reason for that is because for so long, the assumption has been that if children are not in school or if they're not in some sort of a structured learning environment, Mm -hmm. then they will not learn. Mm. And that has been exactly the opposite of my experience, both remembering my own childhood and all of the things that were important to me that I learned that had nothing to do with school. Mm -hmm. And my experience as a professional educator now for almost 25 years and just watching children, you know, as human beings, we are innately insatiably curious. We have this passion to know, to, to figure out, to understand what's happening in the world around us, to connect with people, to explore, to understand. And I mean, you can't turn that off. You can't stop that without trying really, really hard. Right. And so the opportunity 
that we faced as a family when we walked away from the school that we had founded, that we were, you know, working in for years. Uh, It was a process that literally turned, uh, you know, all of our expectations inside out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so we did this thing that's known as de-schooling. And for anyone who is considering embarking on a different educational path, I highly, highly recommend it. It's basically taking time to step away from everything that looks like work or study or education and just kind of take a step back to take a breath to evaluate your thought processes around, you know, what learning, what education looks like, what it can look like and what you want it to look like for you and for your family. And our process of de-schooling really started when we landed in Italy and everything that we were doing was suddenly so different from the way that we had lived for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, my son grew up in our international Montessori school in Japan. You know, he was crawling around the classroom or, you know, engaged in lessons on my hip in a sling. And we were together like all day, every day, eventually as a family, you know, 12, 14 hours a day in school. And then suddenly I'm the one off going to school and my husband and my son are, you know, at home and I'm coming home from school at the end of the day, excited to share all this neat stuff that I'm learning. And, you know, my son is giving me a tour around our tiny little community and introducing me to, you know, the children he's met on the playground or whatever. Mm -hmm. Our lives were just so different there wasn't a thought of, okay, well, you know, he has to go to school or, you know, he has to sit down and do this workbook or, you know, whatever. We're literally figuring things out day to day as we go. So, and well, here, so I, I, I can hear some, a parent listening in and going, okay, so then what does a, a quote unquote typical day then look like <laughs> as someone, because I'm sure you get that question, right? As someone who, if, yes, especially if you've had your kids in a more traditional schooling format, there's yes. always that question I can see from a parent going, okay, so what do they do? <laughs> so, so what does what it, do you do all day? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and this is why I, always caution parents that de-schooling can't just happen over like spring break or Christmas break or even summer vacation, you know, for those old school parents like me for whom, you know, uh, an American summer vacation was three months long. And it was like this long leisurely period of sleeping in and watching TV and playing video games, you know, playing in the park, whatever. That kind of stuff is great. But I, I almost feel like I have to encourage parents to settle in and have that vacation and then begin the de-schooling journey after that. Because what's so challenging about stepping outside of the educational conventions is not you know, what you actually are doing from day to day. It's more along the lines of what you're not doing. 
And the challenge that we often have as adults is justifying to ourselves why it's okay that we're not doing what everyone else is doing. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. You know what? And I, I know we're talking about world schooling and de-schooling, but I feel like this is being re-examined right now in the world of remote work. Yes. Because we're yes, all, so, much, yes. so many of us, if you were in many ways privileged to be able to work from home, you know, you start mm-hmm. to realize, okay, I go to the office from nine to five, but what does mm-hmm. it look like if you do get your work done, if you're able to do it and it's done from like, seven to 12, right? Because it's still the same amount of work, but it looks different. And so, yeah, I can absolutely see kind of that you you almost have to reframe your perspective and reframe your mind in terms of what the possibilities are. And that's what the process of de-schooling really allows you to do, to give yourself both the time and space to really sit back and think, okay, well, if I'm not doing this, then, you know, what am I going to do to fill this time? And really just to sit with the discomfort of figuring out, you know, am I okay with that? Am I, do I have the sense of clarity within myself to be able to justify that not only to myself, but to other people who, you know, might question how I'm spending my days. Right. And that is really, really uncomfortable for a lot of parents to sit with. And that's why that process of de-schooling takes more than just a traditional school break to kind of figure out. Gotcha. No, man, I, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking to myself, yeah, you really do have to, mentally get into that space because there's so much I think there's just so much about the way we perceive the world and we perceive how things could be that anytime Mm -hmm. we run up against something that's a little bit different or sort of outside that box we kind of look at it and go but but how do you learn if you're not in a classroom with 24 other children and a teacher and you know break time and 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 how do how do they how do they prepare and so uh yeah I, that that can be difficult because you I, because that we all have to unlearn right if we're going to do this method we have to yes we, have, we do we have to unlearn what we learned <laughs> and use exactly and use what's beneficial right but you know what wasn't beneficial we kind of have to admit and say it wasn't helpful and it and it doesn't that- Exactly. And it doesn't contribute. That is, that is absolutely true. And and this process of evaluation requires really kind of peeling back lots of layers. You know, the layers of our expectations based on what our experiences were mm-hmm. as a child. Oh, totally. The, the layers of expectations of, you know, friends and well-meaning family members that get piled on on top of that. And then as a parent, you know, this is what I think my child is going to need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of these things get piled on top of one another. And so it takes time to peel back those layers and start to figure out, you know, well, first, just who am I as an individual outside of this role of student mm-hmm. or parent or child or teacher or you know, whatever other roles we might inhabit. Who am I? What do I like to do? You know, what gets me excited to wake up in the morning? Mm -hmm. And, you know, learning styles. Oh, that's another one. 
that takes some time both as a parent and a teacher mm-hmm. and from the perspective of the child too, you know, what ways get me most excited about learning? This idea that sitting at a desk with uh, an open, you know, textbook and or notebook, or even sitting in front of a computer screen, you know, that doesn't necessarily resonate with everyone. And I know, especially in 2020, these are the sorts of things that we're all having to really take some time to work through to figure out, you know, how are we going to make this work? And what ways can we design our days to make it work so that it's not this painful, torturous experience for everyone involved? And so it's crazy because you really have to think about, I mean, even looking at your own journey in terms of really doing that reflection, even, Mm -hmm. you know, embarking Mm -hmm. on the expat life, right? And embarking on some kind of mobile life requires some of that because you still have pushback from family and friends who might say, well, you know, you're from here. Why do you want to go to this other country? Why do you want to upend your life? Right. So you've already, in in many Uh ways, you've you've Uh probably already gone through level one when you make that, (laughs) you make that jump moving to Japan. And and absolutely, I I think that's the story of almost any expat, right. For, because for everyone who is supportive and kind of sort of gets it, there's a whole host of people who don't. Right. Because you there absolutely are. You are doing something that's completely different. And and the thing that I think I picked up the most and what I've learned from you with world schooling and de-schooling and unschooling is that in many ways, let's be honest, this is like choose your own adventure. So, yes. so <laughs> I've been saying that a lot for a lot of different things. It's like choose your own apocalypse with everything going on. But also, this is like choose your own. What weapon will you use in the in the Super Mario Brothers game? I'm dating myself. <laughs> like Legend of Zelda. Yes. It's like what weapon are you? Gonna- I was saying those two. Yes, <laughs> but but it is sort of like choose your own adventure in the sense that even what world schooling looks like for your family right? Yes. Does not mean it's going to look the same for a different family. What the, not even close. The important part (laughs) is it is, is what you're doing a good fit and a good match. And I think that's the part I really want people to hear that it's not what you're doing. You can only speak about your experience because it makes sense for your experience, Mm -hmm. but exactly for other parents who have children with different learning needs or, you know, just even more children, <laughs> how you, yes. how you, yes. how you deliver this world schooling experience. It's just going to depend on what is the best fit for your family and, and your situation. I mean, I, I would imagine. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. And to get back to one of my favorite subjects of food, you know, when I use food as an analogy for this experience, people tend to have a little bit greater understanding because they realize, oh, well, that's something that we all kind of do in a variety of different ways. And, and it's okay to customize it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we might all decide, oh yeah, we're going to have burgers today, Mm -hmm. but not everybody's burger is going to necessarily look the same either. You know, (laughs) you might have a patty in the middle of two buns and that might be kind of standard, but that doesn't mean that everybody's patty in the middle is going to be filled with meat. Right. Necessarily does it. Or, you know, somebody might have lettuce and cheese and tomato on there, but they might put that in a completely different order. Mm Mm-hmm. Or they might decide, you know, I'm just going to have that as a salad on the side. And so I'm still eating all the same things, but it looks very different when it's compiled on the plate. Absolutely. And so, and 
if we can all do that, take the same meal and kind of, you know, customize it to the way that we like to enjoy it, you know, we can take that, that same image and say, well, you know, our entire life is really, you know, that same way as well. You know, we wake up and we go about doing the things that we're interested in doing, but it's, it's definitely not going to look the same, even if there are some of the same components there. And we might season it differently. You know, we might <laughs> eat it at a different time of day. We're going to, the, the entire composition of it is going to be so drastically different from one person to the next, from one household mm-hmm. to the next, from one country or one continent to the next, that even our world schooling experience as a family changes mm. with each continent that we move to with each new country in which we live in each new community language Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we're taking on in this journey, every single aspect of it changes and and it's variable. And that's part of the excitement and the joy of the experience, which is why I always laugh when people ask what a typical day looks like, because (laughs) there is no such thing Mm -hmm. as a typical day. And, you know, that's a great segue into your work with our kitchen classroom. And uh, could you tell me a little bit more about what you cover and what you do with that? Sure. Well, I like to say that our kitchen classroom really grew out of our international Montessori school in Japan, because just like I was talking about challenging those expectations of what something should look like Mm -hmm. from the moment we opened the doors to our school and explained to the parents that we would be preparing food in the school, you know, there was this pushback about, well, okay, but that's not what the education is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have always used food and cooking as a a sort of a a gateway, if you will, into a variety of other subjects. The traditional classroom subjects, you know, you might have them separated with history and math and reading, but everything comes together in the kitchen, whether it's reading recipes, weighing, measuring, and calculating percentages for ingredients that are coming together. You've got the beautiful chemistry of the science experiments of cooking itself. And there's the art of composing a dish, a meal, you know, a, a series of Uh, dinners and uh, the events in which everything comes together. And then, of course, there is the language of food and the multi-sensory experience of touching and smelling and tasting all of the different ingredients at every stage from sourcing the ingredients, you know, wandering out into the local community and you know <laughs> bartering for ingredients in a local market uh-huh. all the way to washing up the dishes and cleaning up and putting everything away after it everything is all part of this learning experience and so i was doing this with you know children under the age of 6 <laughs> at our school in japan mm-hmm. and that's exactly what i continue to do both in person and especially online mm-hmm. with parents and families all around the globe. And we get a chance to not just talk about the different ingredients and dishes from around the world that we're preparing, Mm. but some of the, you know, historical and cultural traditions that have continued to perpetuate these foods and how 
people experience those around the world. I mean, I, and I will say this just as someone who's read some of your writings. And once again, we've had them on the site. I, there's so much, I think I learn even about food, just even in, in, in the stuff that you share and, and your experiences and what you've gained that you're right. I mean, food is such a connector, right? And, and, Yes. When, and sometimes when you don't have language and sometimes you don't have a shared experience, there's something about seeing an ingredient that maybe you might be familiar with, but seeing it prepared in a different way and learning yes. about an identity and, 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 and how that how that ingredient is used in a community. And and mm-hmm. and so obviously you had spent your time in Italy as a family. And then I believe at that point, you guys made a transition over to the Balkans. Is that correct? Actually, from Italy, we spent some time in the UK. Oh, I, for- I forgot Mexico. about that. I don't know why. I forgot about the UK. <laughs> I know you guys went, but my brain is like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, they've been in Albania this whole time. Okay, so you went to the UK. And you went to Mexico. Yeah, we did actually, we've spent a lot of time in the Balkans, but the first two years of our full-time travel, we actually completely circled the globe. We returned to where we started in Japan and had a chance to visit with friends again as I, you know, was really excited to bring so many of the things that I had learned cooking in these different places around the world back to the place where it, you know, kind of all started. Uh But from Japan, again, we went to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, We went back to the United States briefly to visit family and friends again. We made a second tour in Italy, this time in the Tuscan region, where I was uh, helping to run a restaurant. I love Tuscan. This has nothing to do with anybody, but I love... I love Florence and Siena and Assisi and like, (laughs) if I could retire, y'all, if you have not been, it's gorgeous and peaceful and the food's amazing. But anyway, carry on. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. You can continue to gush about Italy. It will always have a very special plate in my heart and in our global culinary adventures. I feel like Italy is one of those places that we could return to again and again in, you know, different times of the year and different seasons and different regions of the country. And, you know, you uncover, you learn, you discover something new. And that's one of the key things that was so revelatory for me uh, in this cooking school as an adult, this understanding that I didn't have as a child growing up in Southern California that, you know, food has seasons, you know, (laughs) I did not know how blessed I was to have fresh fruits and vegetables, basically whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted showing up, you know, on my table. And it's ironic. I was going to say, Karen, the first time that came to my attention was when we had a Japanese exchange student who came to stay with my family when I was a child who thought we were rich. We had to be a wealthy family because we had this bowl of fruit in the middle of our kitchen table. But Karen, I was, I was, I was, I was thinking that's such an American thing, though. Yes, it is. I don't think of, I don't honestly. I don't think if you really haven't lived outside of the U.S., you actually recognize accessibility to whatever you want, irrespective of whether it is being grown at that time. 
is right. ridiculous because in most places it is. in the world, right? You eat what's in season. So it's 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 absolutely ridiculous. And I will say that there are a few other places in the world where we've traveled and we've had that accessibility. So that is a privilege of wealth as well as location. Yes. Yes. But it's also really, really crucial to an understanding of just how interconnected our planet is. And part of the reason for that disconnect is exactly what we're trying to draw attention back to, because the fact that, you know, we would even live that way is, I mean, really, when we take the time to think about it, especially if you've had the opportunity to live in a place that is so connected to the earth and its seasons, that that is not the case, that you realize just how far separated we really are from, you know, so much of the way many people around the world live and experience their daily life. Agreed. I mean, it's, it is, it is crazy to me. I, and every now, every now and then I have this thought, I'll go to the store and I'm like, I know this is not in season. It's also why it's expensive, but it's not, it's not as expensive as if I were in another country where they totally don't have access to this piece of fruit or vegetable and they've got to ship it in and it's got to go long distances. I mean, I felt like I learned that living in Qatar, right? Is that there were a lot of, a lot of things were not indigenous to, (laughs) this was the desert. A lot of things were not indigenous to the the region. And so, you know, and we always have this conversation, food is so expensive. Well, yeah, because especially if you wanted a particular Western thing, and and, and that's if it, oh, and that's if yeah. it was processed. But let's let's even get into whole grains and fresh fruits or whatever, and it just doesn't grow there. Mm-hmm. And it is funny to me how often we don't think about that until we are in different places. And so you're right, yes. we're so interconnected. Yes. I know, especially coming from the American context that says, you know, I just I want what I want when I want it, right. and <laughs> having convenience of that is one of those privileges that we often don't recognize until we don't have it anymore or when we have to pay for it. (laughs) And I remember how many uh, foreign residents in Japan would complain about how expensive it was to get XYZ. Well, of course, you know, shipping that whatever snack food that you love from halfway around the world. Yes, that's going to cost some money. (laughs) But it extends to more than just the the snacky kind of stuff too. I mean, for years, I mean, as a cook and as an educator and as a person who just wanted to connect, you know, we I was a part of a more limited subset of the Japanese the expat community in Japan because we would host this big Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And I say a smaller subset because we by necessity had to limit it to people from North America uh, or their extended families who had that connection to the Thanksgiving traditions that we had shared simply because of the fact that we couldn't have this become, you know, an event with 500 people, Uh you know, we were limited in scope and size by the space that we had available. But there were years when, you know, I would spend $60 to ship a single turkey yeah. to Japan. I was going to say, turkeys are expensive if you're not in a place where they grow them, like they raise them. Exactly. And that's yeah, all. Turkeys are not a thing. 
in Japan. And there are a lot of places so, in the world that don't raise turkeys. I'm just saying. No, that is absolutely correct. And that's why it was so important to, you know, discuss the culinary traditions behind, you know, what we called this cultural tradition mm-hmm. and sharing the the fact that you know all of these different pieces you know, didn't necessarily originate in this one place but the way that it all came together and then reevaluating well how can we make adjustments to that in order to you know bring it more locally and so eventually this big thanksgiving dinner thing that we were doing you know we rather than shipping turkey from the united states you know we could get something from brazil maybe or you know we got to know local farmers. And eventually we created enough of a demand. I had local farmers who were growing pumpkins <laughs> and it was I mean, absolutely amazing. Now what time of year you need a, well, let me not say that. I will rock a pumpkin and sweet potato pie just about any time of year if I have the pumpkin or the sweet potato, but yeah. Yeah. You never think about it. It's funny though, how much we do associate a food with a certain holiday or an experience. And so for some of us, that food is not there. So if a turkey is not there, it's not really Thanksgiving for a lot of people. And I, I, I personally have witnessed how much people have spent to get a turkey to a country that, And I have been one of those people too. But an amazing part of this journey is, again, coming to that self-awareness, that sense of clarity that says, you know, this is how I choose to define myself, or I no longer choose to define myself and, you know, my cultural experience in this way. And so here we are, you know, my family and I in North Macedonia (laughs) and recognizing, you know, my culinary background, you know, our hosts, the people from whom we're renting our place now, are farmers. And so they have grown this amazing pumpkin. So I've got this huge pumpkin literally sitting on my kitchen counter right now <laughs> that we're going to turn into a pie hey. to share with our neighbors, our Macedonian neighbors. And, you know, it's, it's fall, but it's not November yet. And that's okay because this is a part of how we share a little bit of our culinary traditions and our cultural experience and part of what we learn as we all come together in this exchange. So, and that's what makes this travel and meeting new people and learning together such an amazing world schooling experience. And so I think you've just, you've described community and, 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 and community in a very, unique, tangible way, which, which kind of leads me to sort of these next line of questions. And so mm-hmm. as a family that is, you're not constantly on the road, but, but you guys are changing locations quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. How has been, how have you guys navigated community? And I, I know we haven't referenced this earlier, but you are an, inter, you're an interracial marriage and, and, yes. and what has been for you as you've navigated four continents, you lived in different countries, you lived in places where a lot of people wouldn't even consider going. Um, how have you found community and, and 
you know, how has the reception be, been? Because I, I know that's often a, a common question for some of the families that are in interracial cross-cultural relationships is, has it been yes. okay? Has it been chill? Have there been, have there been challenges? And, and of course, you guys have a son who's biracial. Um, what's, what's been your experiences as a family? Our experiences have been amazingly warm and welcoming everywhere we go. And it's, I know it's not necessarily everyone's experience, but it's a huge part of the reason that we are still so excited to be on this adventure together as a family. I can honestly say that outside of, you know, London, (laughs) maybe, or when we were in uh, LA, you know, being a multiracial family is still not necessarily the the norm or the expectation mm-hmm. everywhere we travel and you know my husband and I are quite used to uh, the shock and surprise on people's faces when you know we identify ourselves as a couple but I have to say it's really really funny when as a family the three of us will be walking down the street usually with our son you know racing ahead of us and with his big full head of spiral curls and his long eyelashes and high cheekbones he always gets you know this reception as people you know are cooing and him and ooing and awing and wanting to touch his hair and it's hilarious for me to kind of see that light bulb moment of understanding when people look at him and then see, people look, look at, at my husband <laughs> and look at me yeah. and the genetic mathematical <laughs> equation finally clicks in their brain and they're yeah. like, oh. Y'all ain't the, fir- it, like the first ones to say that too, like where people go, yeah, people look at our children and then they look at, they sometimes point and go, the two of you? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's really, really funny. And I have to say, it was even funnier when we actually connected with another multiracial family in Albania. And all of us <laughs> walking down the street together, uh, a black man and a black woman, a white man and a white woman, <laughs> and all these multiracial children. And there was so much like shock and awe and confusion. I, I know that people think I must be exaggerating, but it's, I have literally been the very first black person that many people have ever seen, <laughs> you know, actually in person, you know, not on television or not in a movie or anything. I and I have had people, you know, practically walk into walls, bump into <laughs> things, trip because they're so busy you know, staring and trying not to appear. That they're staring. Staring, right? <laughs> God bless the people who at least are trying to appear that they're not staring. Cause then there's the other contingent where they're just staring and yes they, they and, just... and sometimes they do flat out stare but what has been wonderful to me coming from the american context that i had growing up as a child is that the curiosity is not animosity mm. they the people have just been interested and innocently curious because they don't know. They're approaching me without the racial hatred uh, or bias or discrimination, you know, Mm -hmm. with which I was raised. And from that context, it has been incredibly refreshing Mm -hmm. because 
yes, I stand out. You know, I have my naturally curly Afro and, you know, my dark skin and my, you know, big, wide, round body. And I look different from everybody else around me. So people are naturally curious, but they legitimately want to get to know me and they want to, you know, touch my hair and touch my skin and ask if the black rubs off and some of the things that, you know, make me laugh. I'm I'm like, you are so laughing and yet, I mean, I I was going to say, did I make this up? Did I see a photo of you once doing a handstand? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I thought you were doing something. I said, wait, and I was scrolling through. And I was like, is, is Karen doing a handstand in the middle of wherever she is, somewhere yeah. in Europe? And yeah. Uh, I, I do that all over the place, yeah. Um, <laughs> I practiced yoga, and uh, I did some tumbling and gymnastics yes. with my son. <laughs> and, that's what that's uh, memory. <laughs> In front of, in the middle of a street, uh, I know I took a picture in a mural, uh, in front of a mural once, someplace that said, you know, change your perspective. Yeah. And so that's what I did. <laughs> I, I love that you said the curiosity is not animosity. Um, yes. And I, which makes me think about the fact that you guys have a son and your son's, the majority of his life has been spent outside of the United States. And so, you know, That's I'm right. sure he's entering at this point, probably his preteen years, if he isn't in them already. He is almost 10. Yeah, I, I knew he was getting up there. <laughs> so, yeah. And so what do you think as, you, as, you're, as you guys are raising this child, um, how do you see his relationship with the U.S. right now? And, and what, do you, what do you think it might turn into as he gets older, as a teenager? Well, you know, uh, again, especially this year in 2020, that's so incredibly complicated. You know, my husband and I have recognized so much of how his childhood experience and my childhood experience are so vastly different from our son's experience that a lot of his education, his upbringing is really in a lot of ways, not just broader in, you know, the global and traveling sense, but in the true sense of being a global citizen. And that's really what we want for him. We don't want his thinking, his perspectives, even, you know, his language to be limited by, you know, these imaginary borders, these lines that we've drawn on the map, on on the globe that, you know, dictate that a person who comes from here must, you know, look like this, do that, you know, say or express or whatever. We want to really open up his sense of self and by extrapolation, his opportunities even wider than what we personally experienced ourselves. And so for us, that is what world schooling is really about. And we were just talking about community and we have found community, not just in the physical 
locations in which we have resided, not even just in the online communities that we are a part of and that continue to grow in these world schooling spaces with other traveling families like ours, with other families who, you know, educate in a less traditional sense like we do, uh, but also within communities of faith. And this is something that has happened within our church families in Japan, you know, where our son was born and spent the first few years of his life, but everywhere around the world that we have been. And what we have been attempting to highlight as we make those connections is just how similar we are all as people and helping to make those connections, helping to satisfy people's curiosity by getting to know them on a personal level, you know, cooking together and breaking bread together as we do. Mm -hmm. It really helps the world to be a much smaller place so that, you know, the end result, we hope, (laughs) what we're working toward is that our child really feels at home anywhere in the world that we happen to reside. And, you know, I would hope that that might be in the United States, if that's what he chooses at some point in the future, uh, in Japan, if that's where he would like to return, you know, in Albania, where we have spent the last year, it, it could be in some place that we have yet to visit mm-hmm. that, you know, we haven't considered living yet as a family. You know, Albania was never on our radar when we started traveling. Mm-hmm. And now it's one of the many places that, you know, we have been blessed to call home. So that's what we want, you know, for our child to really be a true global citizen and to know that he can be at home anywhere in the world and to give him the skills, the self-confidence, the the sense of self to make that a reality. Mm. Well, I think you've just given us some really powerful thoughts to really reflect on. And I, much of what you've said, I think it's, that's the hope of all parents, right? Is, is to have these children that can have a sense of the world and a sense of place and, and, and a purpose. And, and I love what you say about community and the different ways that we can find community, because I think too often community doesn't necessarily look like us, but it doesn't mean it doesn't always, but it doesn't mean it can't be our community. Um, Exactly. And with that, I'm going to pivot and drop you into the lightning round because I, as I, I give all guests all morning, I've got three questions <laughs> that I'd love to close on. And so okay. sort of the stuff, you, you know, you, I say what, what, give me the response that comes off the top of your mind. And then usually then there's a two minute soliloquy about how. <laughs> I can't promise you I'm not going to overthink and it or answer in a completely different way than you expect, but bring it honestly, on. Honestly, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first. <laughs> so, all right. So, first question, best country experience so far? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, right? That's the first response normally, but yeah. 
Yeah, it is. You know, I'm working so hard on being present. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked at the beginning about the beautiful, sparkling, crystal clear Lake Orid. So I have to say right here, right now, where I am in Lake Orid, because it's magnificent. And I, I, I would bet it is a place that few of our listeners have been to. Well, I can highly, highly recommend it. Cool. So we got to put North Macedonia on the travel list. All right. Order's <laughs> open up. Uh, second question. What's the easiest dish to make while on the road? The easiest dish to make while on the road. You know, I am going to have to say eggs. <laughs> And I would have said that even while I was still living in the United States, in the United States, because eggs are such a versatile ingredient. Mm. But what's amazing to me is that not only are they versatile, but they can be changed and enhanced and elevated so drastically differently, depending on what's in season, what's available, wherever we happen to be living, that we love playing with eggs everywhere we go. And it's something that we do with regularity. So yeah, I'm going to go with eggs. Okay. And if I change that question up and that non-dairy vegan option <laughs> what would you say non-dairy vegan option hmm you know breads around the world mm. are so much fun to play with too and we have done so many different kinds of flatbreads and yeasted breads. And so we did tons of sourdough while we were in lockdown. I Albania. do love me a good and, flatbread, I will say. <laughs> Great flatbread. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes, because you talked about using a variety of different grains and things, too. Using rice flour or whole wheat flour or, you know, oh, uh, just a variety of different uh, freshly milled grains. We had access to some really great ones in Albania too. So yeah, I like playing with bread. Last question. If you had to retire somewhere, what's at the top of the list right now? <sighs> See, <laughs> I know you're going to think I'm just talking about where I am because it's gorgeous, but <laughs> Growing up in Southern California, I I love being near the water. And Orid is kind of this, you know, resort community. And if I could retire right here and be close and go play in the water like I have been like every day since I arrived here. There. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Um of course I've also said that about every coastal city where we've lived. <laughs> When we were in Mexico and, you know, we were a stone's throw from the beach, I was like, yes, I just want to stay here for the rest of my life. And when we were in Australia and we were on the beach, and in New Zealand and on the beach. Yeah. So if I have to say retire, I'm thinking, yeah, there's white sand and blue water and a lot of warmth and sunshine. But I have such itchy feet. Even the thought of retirement doesn't fill me with this desire to be rooted necessarily in one specific place. So maybe I'll just do as I did when our family started our travels. And I will chase summer and warm weather around the globe and keep moving. And I'll just hit up all of the crystal clear white sand beaches I can find. <laughs> 
Great answer. Great answer. Well, before we close out, what can I say? I want it all. <laughs> I was to say, before we close out, where can folks find you? I know that you do coaching and consulting with families and, and you've got a lot of projects going on. So where can you be found on the interwebs? I do. The best place to catch up with us is at our website. That's ourkitchenclassroom.com. And you can search for me that way um, using my name, Karen M. Ricks. And I have my personal and business pages on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us with the hashtag ourkitchenclassroom. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel where you'll find not just cooking lessons, but also some little snippets of our global culinary adventures and even some of the splashing waves from the beach. Nice, nice. <laughs> but yeah, we're all just search for our kitchen classroom and hopefully you'll see my smiling face and some good looking food and warm, sunny beaches. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for hopping on with me today, Karen. I always love oh, hearing your thank stories. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and you're I love chatting with you. <laughs> I always learn something new, which I don't necessarily all the time, but with, with you, it's always something that I'm thinking, I haven't even considered that before. And so I'm so glad you're here. Yes. <laughs> and my job is done. That's what I aim to do. <laughs> all right. And with that, we're The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.